This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. Sonic Youth member Thurston Moore has released a memoir called Sonic Life. It is a chronicle of the singer-guitarist's lifelong obsession with music and the relationships he's made along the way. KXP's Martin Douglas spoke to Thurston about Sonic Life, his interest in record collecting, and why he didn't dive into his personal life in the book. One of the better-kept secrets of Thurston Moore's career is that he's always been a writer. While he was gaining notoriety as a founding member of Sonic Youth, he self-published issues of his fanzine, titled Killer, and wrote poetry. But Sonic Youth left a massive shadow in their three decades as a band, not just for their music, which went headlong into experimental punk before they practically invented the genre known as alternative rock but also for their advocacy of younger bands that they brought on tour. Bands like The Breeders, Pavement, and a band you might have heard of called Nirvana. They're also known for how to sign to a major label without selling out. Sonic Life. The title of Thurston's first book of nonfiction says it all. It's a chronicle of the musician's life through the bands he's loved, the musicians, artists, and writers he's befriended, and the band he was in that has left their mark on the world. From his home in London, Thurston spoke to me about quite a few topics, starting with a groundbreaking musical moment in his early life. Sonic Life begins with a formative music experience, which is um, you listening to The Kingsman for the first time. You describe it in the book with such enthusiasm. I was wondering if you could speak to the importance of five-year-old Thurston hearing Louie Louie for the first time. It's that Pacific Northwest thing, man, you know, it's just like it's there from the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, the Kingsmen, there was something really kind of charming about them because they were called the Kingsmen as if they were like, as if they were from England. I mean, the Kingsmen, my God. And so, uh, you know, as if they were some like young royal knaves so, yeah, the Kingsman. But I don't know if I was actually articulating any of that when I was like five years old when that record came into the house. I think it was more to do with just like first hearing something that could be you could actually sort of attach your own identity to. And by that, I mean, it sort of it came from outside and outside was just pretty much the realm of the adult world. You were always sort of like under the command of, of the adult world. And so for this record to come in that really had nothing to do with that world, had something else to do with like this teenage world that was a bit more reckless. It seemed like it was kind of resistant, if not rebellious against that world. You know, the sound of it was just like really at odds with like what had been heard so far you know, in the musical world that our family had. And there was a musical world in our house, certainly with my father's classical music playing and whatever classical records would have been played. Um, in the pop, you sort of, I guess you knew about pop music that you would hear on Ed Sullivan show, the TV shows coming off the TV. But that was all very sort of safe and kind of, uh, you know, it was definitely mainstream. The, the Louie Louie by the Kingsman wasn't really mainstream, even though it became... A radio hit 
it was never, I don't think it was ever sort of seen as like kind of um, like mainstream sound of, of North America. Being a Pacific Northwest guy, I had to start with the Kingsmen. I'm actually from Tacoma. So like the Kingsmen, the Sonics, the Whalers, they all unofficially ushered me into my love of what is now called garage rock. Yeah, totally. I mean, Louie Louie was always an important record just because of what it meant to myself and my brother. It just, in, in some ways, to our family. But years later, when I was a teenager, I remember finding, like, introducing the Sonics record. In some ways, the records that were kind of discounted because nobody was buying them in, in the late 60s, early 70s, were the ones that really informed me. So it would be like a record, like, like a Sonics record that was just kind of on a label called Jordan, J-E-R-D-E-N. And it would be like, you know, the corner was cut off and it was stuck in this cutout bin. But I could afford it. I couldn't really afford Abbey Road by the Beatles, but I could afford <laughs> introducing the Sonics. It was like 39 cents. And so those became my friends, those records. Not all of those 50 cent records were great or epif you know, any epiphany or anything like that. But some of them were. Uh, most of them weren't, but some of them were. Yeah, and like, now you look at these records that are quote-unquote cool or, you know, just mind-blowing, and they go for $250 on Discogs. Yeah, I mean, I wish I sort of kept a lot of things that would later become so rarefied. But I used to, God, even living in New York in the 80s, I would take records that I had and bring them to St. Mark's Place and set up a little blanket full of records that I would sell for a couple bucks each just so I had money to buy cigarettes or something. One of the biggest mistakes was selling that record. It was one of, it was like this really early experimental hip hop record by this guy Ramel Z. Everybody's turning crazy so you better believe to do the right things soon you'll see. Yeah, he was a compatriot of Jean-Michel Basquiat. And Basquiat had done the cover art for the record and we were rehearsing in a basement that Jean-Michel was sleeping in. And that record is like $30,000 art record now. <laughs> it's like, I still lose sleep over selling the Ramel Z record. Is there a particular reason why you wanted to write about music specifically and your life in music rather than the more personal aspects of your life? Yeah, I used to write a lot in, in different fans, you know, publishing fanzines and writing in different fanzines and... Writing about music was like what I wanted to do with this book more than just writing about my life. I sort of used my life as a, as a bit of a stepping stone into writing about the inspirations. So that sort of was the intention of the book as opposed to like being a quote unquote tell all of like whatever kind of dirty laundry that might be in my life. <laughs> I made that choice because I found no joy in writing about some of the more what I consider very private aspects of my life, you know, uh, certainly, you know, my relationship in a, in a marriage and with my family and, you know, and not really having that be monetized, you know, for public consumption, because I think it's I think it's kind of in disregard to certainly my my family, you know, that particularly my 29 year old daughter, I don't think she needs to be reading about her father's thoughts about his his marriage and his divorce and his family life. And I don't think it's anybody's business, even though a lot of people think it is their business because it's like your public figures. It's like, yeah, get lost. I don't I don't care. I don't I don't I don't want to share it and I don't want to talk about it because I find it kind of boorish. 
and anything you're kind of investing in it as as some kind of importance to like you know the musical world of Sonic Youth, I disagree. I don't think it really has that much to do with it. A great deal of Sonic life details your life in that downtown New York punk scene in the 70s and 80s, first as a fan and then as a participant. And I was wondering, because you had lived there for so long, what was the appeal of New York to you over any of the places you might have traveled as part of Sonic Youth? Certainly it was the proximity to where I was living as a teenager and sort of reading the music magazines that were existing in the early to mid-70s when when there'd be more uh, prolific kind of uh, writing about bands that were coming out of the downtown New York scene that was just kind of like blossoming in the mid-70s. And knowing that it was close enough that I could actually probably get to it if I just get my driver's license and figure this out. And I, so there was something about that. It was, it was just the reality of the proximity. But... I also I often think about like what where I would have gone towards if I was living in like Lawrence Kansas or if I, you know it was like in Tempe Arizona or whatever, and so invariably I become very interested in in the uprising of scenes in all the kind of regional areas outside of the major cities in the USA, and you know it was always really curious like what was happening in say, Minneapolis, but even more so what was happening like in Maumee, Ohio or something like that. Like Because there was like this this kind of early 80s hardcore scene coming up in Maumee, Ohio around a band like the Necros or something. And there's some, I just like, there's something really cool about being even further out from the media eye of like New York City or LA or something. And I don't know if a band like Sonic Youth would ever happened anywhere else. I mean, it was all sort of, it was all a matter of sort of providence and happenstance of going there and meeting who I met and, and one thing leading to the other. There was, there was no, um, there was no forced agenda. You know, the most successful thing happening around us was some of the bands coming over from London, like a band like the Birthday Party coming over. I remember thinking like, they're such a mess, but they're kind of a success as well. And it's like, well, how is that working? You know, a lot. It's like it must be because they're in like this this place called London that sort of is constantly promoting this kind of music. Whereas living in New York at the time, there wasn't. You didn't really have that promotion. So you would find yourself trying to get through the days by having day jobs and working, washing dishes, and you know, making sure you can pay the rent. And then also just kind of realizing your own, what your own lifestyle is and knowing that you had a band, but nobody was really that interested in. While we're on the subject of regional scenes, I wanted to ask you if there was a particular music scene, if you couldn't be involved in the New York no-wave art punk scene, is, is there a scene that you feasibly could have seen yourself as part of any time, any place in history? Well, I mean, I had aspirations it, it, with, mixed with fantasies about um, running off to London early on. I kind of recognized London in, in the late 70s of having participants more my age, but I didn't really regard the no-wave scene until I kind of moved there and I realized, oh, there are people my age making this incredibly insane kind of music, if you even want to call it music. 
So I don't know. I mean, yes. I, and I also remember seeing photos of of the first kind of punk stuff happening in Los Angeles around bands like The Germs and X and Go-Go's. And, and, and I thought like, oh, again, there's like, though those people are my age in a way, and they seem to be having a blast. And I was kind of curious about that. Yeah, I mean, I would have liked to have been part of um, a, a, a number of scenes that I would learn about. I mean, certainly, like, there was a scene in Berlin in the mid to late 70s that, that sounded amazing. The scene that sort of came out of the whole Bowie-Iggy period when they were sort of living there and doing The Idiot and Lust for Life. and But there was a scene that a lot of those first bands that came out of Berlin was, sounded really incredible. I would have... That would have been kind of cool. But I don't know if I would have traded my experiences in New York for anything else. I really don't. I mean, I've always been very interested in scenes, per se. I mean, my God, if I was younger, just by a couple of years, I would have like loved to have been in like the DC hardcore scene when that was coming up in 79, 80, 81. You know, and I was kind of already like, a couple of years too old for that, for those guys. I kind of, uh, and I really liked what they're, what they were professing, you know, as a community of new punk rock people, you know, and this really stripped down minimal music and, and this idea of like looking out for each other and having these ideals of safety and, and not being, not succumbing to like the typical teenage idea of just like, uh, effing yourself up with drugs, alcohol, and and just you know, and and uh, indignity towards the opposite sex. So that to me was just like, wow, that never existed in any kind of rock scene that I know of until that happened with around the DC hardcore scene. And I see everything about it, the way it conducted itself, the way it kind of had an exchange with other scenes on the road. Um, I was enamored by it, and I felt like, I God, I really wish I could have been part of that scene. But I was in my own thing. I was in this art rock world of downtown New York. That was Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth talking with KEXP's Martin Douglas about his memoir titled Sonic Life. You're perfect in the way A perfect That was Sound and Vision. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and consider giving a one-time $20 donation to help support this show at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks for listening.